So when I got to Korea, I just, you know, I was no longer in a phase of life where I was happy to just, you know, be in a bar screaming out the 10 words that I know, you know, like, oh, you guys are great. Oh, do you like beer? I like beer. Like, actually, when I was learning Chinese, I was in that phase. And I think it <laughs> helped my Chinese a lot to be in that phase. Mm-hmm. But when you get a little bit older, you, you lose a little and you lose some of your patience for that. Show, a podcast all about loving, living, and learning languages. Hello, Fluent Fam. This is Kirsten from fluentlanguage.co.uk, as always, bringing you a podcast about anything and everything interesting from the world of learning another language. It's the Fluent Show, and I'm so so excited. I'm genuinely super, super excited because I've just finished listening back to the conversation with the guest that I have for you this week. And it's wonderful. There is so much interesting stuff in this conversation. Really something for all of us. I'll tell you more about it in a minute. Ooh, ooh, the guest I have is Sarah Maria Hasbun, entrepreneur, polyglot, world traveler, I don't know, digital nomad and all round lovely, lovely lady sharing her story. We talked about linguistics and how it's different in Britain and America. We talked about living abroad and learning a language and her recent experience living in Beijing during coronavirus lockdown. And then we moved swiftly and finished our conversation on such a fascinating, interesting topic, which was all about women in the world and what what we women can be like as polyglots. Fascinating stuff. So stay tuned, listen to the interview, and I'll tell you more about Sarah Maria when the interview starts. Before that, of course, we've got a few shout outs and we've got a few little announcements. First of all, if you're an online teacher and you have not heard yet about Teach and Thrive, Teach and Thrive is a membership community that I run together with Lindsay Williams, you might have heard of, co-host of the show. And in Teach and Thrive, we run monthly masterclasses on topics that our members vote for, that you are curious about and will help you expand grow, get more creative and start going bigger in your teaching business. It is such a lovely community. And this week, I'm about to prepare the masterclass on podcasting. So it's going to be Podcasting 101 with Kirsten Cable. I'm going to have lots to say about it. It's on Thursday. And if you are interested, please head to Teach and Thrive. I've put the link in the show notes and the show notes, as always, are at www.fluent.show slash 180 because this is episode 180. The show is sponsored by wonderful resource becoming an absolute staple for me, Yabla. If you don't know what to watch in your target language, if you wish that YouTube was graded for beginner, intermediate, advanced, if you want your subtitles to be just doing more for you as a learner and giving you a dictionary and all the good stuff, then yabla.com slash fluent show is the place I would recommend for you to go. There's a trial there where you can try it out and I've just described it a little bit. 
But if you've never heard of it, Yabla is a video database that has been adapted and created and completely made so much more valuable for learners. You're no longer going to just sort of sit there and kind of watch and feel like you're doing something, but you're not really doing anything. You kind of feel like, well, does this work? And am I ever going to get fluent? No. Well, with Yabla, there is genuinely a lot of pedagogy behind it. And there's just a lot of useful stuff behind it. Just this morning, I tried out their dictation game. It's called Scribe. And it's actually fairly challenging listening comprehension. So even if you haven't been on Yabla recently, but you've done it in the past, if you haven't tried the scribe thing, it's available for other languages except Chinese. So you kind of have to, you have to be a German learner, Spanish, Italian, even if you're an English learner, or of course, Francais, French. Scribe works like this. They show you a clip and it's up to you to caption what you are hearing but it's not as scary as you think because every time you type a letter that might not be quite right anything like that straight away the game tells you it doesn't really take points off it's got a very simple sort of three star rating and then you move on and you move through the clip you're essentially never missing a word again in the video it's i haven't seen anything else that milks the videos to that extent. So do try it out. Highly, highly recommended. And thank you so much to Yabla for sponsoring this show, giving us the opportunity to make those podcasts for you. Free trial, 15 days, nothing to lose. Check it out. It's at yabla.com slash fluent show. Thank you so much to Yabla. And finally, one more thank you. And then we're going to go straight to Sabra Maria. Thank you so much, Fluent Show patrons. I can't ever not say it. And thank you so much to all of you who left a review after my little call for reviews last week. I I might have nearly had a little cry <laughs> reading one of your reviews. They really mean something. They're you showing the world that you listen to this show, but they're also you showing me what's going right with this show, which is always really wonderful to hear. And I'm just so pleased that there is a little community out there of people who appreciate the Fluent Show and appreciate what we're putting out into the world. So let's continue putting something wonderful out into the world. An hour with, I don't know, your new best friend. You're going to want to hang out with her. She's so awesome. Sarah Maria Hasboon, Miss Linguistic. Let's go. Today, I've got a special guest that I've been looking forward to hanging out with for quite a while, and we've got so much to talk about. My guest is Sarah Maria Hasboon. She is an American linguist and polyglot, and she blogs as well, writes about language learning, and recently blogs even more, so we'll talk about that for sure. Sarah Maria is also the founder and managing director of Meridian Linguistics, a linguistic consulting company offering translation services from over... 3,000 registered linguists. So she's a, a hashtag boss babe, if, that, <laughs> if that's what we want to do. And my I'll notes, take it. <laughs> my notes say Sarah Maria lives in Seoul, but I know she doesn't live in Seoul anymore. So Sarah Maria, we have to, we have to do a whole extra introduction. Where do you live now? I live in Beijing. You live in Beijing. Ni hao. Ni hao. <laughs> And how come you moved from Seoul to Beijing? Uh, well, it's a long story. Um, I wanted to get to Beijing for a long time, actually. Um, I've been studying Chinese since college. And uh, yeah, it was a dream for a very long time. And in fact, tried to move to China a few years ago. 
And I had convinced my boyfriend at the time to try to find a job there too. And uh, we were all set to go. And then at the last second, his uh, boss said, actually, we really need you in Korea. And I said, well, okay, great. But my plan was to go to China. So I guess, you know, I'll see you around. Um, but then we ended up visiting Seoul and I fell in love with it. And, you know, before I knew it, we'd lived there for six years. And finally, the opportunity came up for him to be transferred to China. We're now married. Um, and so it just feels like it's fate. And so we're very excited to finally be here. It sounds like it sounds from from that from that it sounds like you kind of move around the world following your husband around. Yeah, yeah. So my husband is a journalist. Um, so he gets transferred every few years to new locations. They don't like to keep journalists in any one place for too long, which I thought was really interesting because I would have thought that you know, as a journalist, when you move to a new country, you build all of this really important knowledge about that location. You learn the language. And why wouldn't you want to have a journalist who had been there for 20 or 30 years? But it turns out that the longer you stay in a country, the more you kind of go native and the more you kind of forget about the perspective of people that are reading from abroad. So they actually try to keep moving you around quite a bit so that you'll never kind of lose that freshness or that understanding of what your reader knows and what your reader is looking for. So it's it's a life that we're both really excited to live because we love living in different countries. And, you know, he, so he's already lived, he's Canadian, but he's already lived in the US and uh, in Korea and Hong Kong and now China. And my job luckily is completely online. So I'm very flexible in where we go. Um, so it works really well. Can you remember the first time that you left your country? The first time ever. Mm. Um, I guess the first time ever would be, I was quite young. We went to El Salvador, which is where my father is from. And uh, yeah, I, I do remember that trip, actually. I think I was maybe five or six, but it was definitely, it left an imprint on my mind because it was the first time I'd been to, you know, such a hot place. I grew up in San Francisco. So it was a place, it was so hot and which I was actually very happy about. Um, you know, the food was really interesting. Everyone was speaking Spanish, which was a language that I did not speak yet. Um, I wouldn't learn Spanish until probably 10 years later, um, oddly, and that's a whole other story. But it really stands out in my mind as that first time that I realized, oh, okay, there's a foreign language that other people can use, but I don't understand and I don't speak. And, you know, how do I get to the point where I can speak that? It sounds like the first time that you traveled had quite an impact on you. Did that sort of, a lot of people feel a sense of, in German, we call it Fernweh, which is mm. uh, when you long for all the faraway places and you kind of, you just, you know, it's kind of pulling you into lots of different directions. Did you feel like that after you went to El Salvador? Definitely, definitely. It definitely awakened my sort of understanding that there were other countries out there and other cultures And, you know, my cousins acted in ways that were very different from the way that me and my sister acted. And yeah, it definitely got me starting to pay attention to different cultures and different languages. So yeah, it really, it really got me started, I guess, on this journey. Although it wouldn't be, it'd be several more years before I really started putting any work into learning languages. We didn't, um, in, The district, the school district that I grew up in, we didn't start start learning foreign languages until high school. So that was quite late. 
And uh, I didn't show any particular talent in learning foreign <laughs> languages. So it was really mostly because I think I, I have this heritage. I, I look very much like a Spanish speaker um, that I felt really motivated to keep going with Spanish, even though I didn't seem to have any talent at it. And so I just really kept pushing and knocking my head against the wall for several years. And around college is when I finally became fluent in Spanish um, after doing some immersion. And that's sort of, I guess, what awakened my interest in it. Once once my ego had taken a pretty strong beating, um, but I finally prevailed, that's that's when I really, that's when it really got crazy. And that's when I felt sort of the need to overcompensate and learn a bunch of other languages. <laughs> There's a real thing, I think, about getting through, pushing through that that bit where it gets hard and where you realize you you really aren't very clever. Right. Yeah. Where at first you think it's just you, you think, well, this is just not something that I'm good at. Mm -hmm. And, you know, honestly, if I didn't look like I was a Spanish speaker, I think I probably would have just left it there. I probably would have just given up and assumed, well, you know, languages aren't my thing. But the reality was growing up in the U.S., I was approached so often by Spanish speakers, you know, people on the street that would just come up to me and ask for directions in Spanish, or, you know, I'd be meeting people in a group setting and then they'd look at me and then they'd figure, oh, she speaks Spanish. I'm going to switch to Spanish now. And I would have to say, oh, I'm so sorry. I don't speak Spanish actually. Mm. Um, and that I was always so embarrassed. So that's really what pushed me to keep on going. And I'm so glad that I kept on going because if I hadn't, I'd never have discovered this complete obsession I have now with learning foreign languages and, and being able to access all the cultures that you get through that. It just seems insane to think about the what you're saying is you looked like a Spanish speaker. So almost everybody around you believed in, in you as a Spanish speaker or as a person with the Spanish speaking potential. Exactly. That's mad. And, and otherwise you wouldn't have bothered. Yeah. And you know, it's really funny because actually my sister um, has the exact same genes, um, but she looks a little more Caucasian than I do. Um, she looks a lot more like our mom, whereas I look a lot more like my dad. And so she was never approached by Spanish speakers. People never assumed that she spoke Spanish. And so she just kind of left it to the side and never really decided to to go very far with Spanish. So she doesn't still she still doesn't speak Spanish. She's actually learned some other languages since, but um, but she never felt the need to to learn Spanish. So I thought that was really interesting that we we had the exact same genetic background, but because the world sees us in very different ways, I felt like I really needed to learn this language, and uh, it was just not a priority for her. That's. I just keep thinking, you know, listening to you, I keep thinking about this, this, this thing that I often say this to, to language learners and something that we've found quite often is when people sort of ask me how I learned English to, to the, the level that I have or any other languages, it's, there's a part of you that just decides, right? And, and that part doesn't, it that doesn't mean, I think a lot of people mistake commitment for it getting easier and it's mm. still just as hard and you're still going to you're still going to be just as bad at it but the persistence is ultimately what really helps you learn a language that's so true because you know especially once you get to around the intermediate phase 
It's really not fun. It's really hard. And you're getting so little back for so much work that you have to put into it. So if you don't have a real strong goal or a real reason for learning, that's about the part where you start to drop off or you start to give up or, you know, turn your attention to other things. But if you have that goal, if you have a real reason to keep on going to, to really persist, then, then yeah, it doesn't get easier. Like you said, it, in fact, it gets harder, <laughs> but you can use that goal to push yourself through. So once you, once you got on top of Spanish, you mentioned that you really, that was, that was the moment where you went, right, I'm going to go for it. And I, I, I want more languages around me. Then what was the inspiration for the, say the next language that you picked up? Was it local community? Was it, I want to, what, what inspired you in that sense? Yeah. So around that time, um, yeah, I guess I felt so, I was very proud of myself because I felt like I'd finally mastered something that I had always thought that I would be bad at. And it opened up this whole glamorous world of suddenly I could read like Spanish novels and suddenly I could talk to people in other countries. And that was so exciting. And I wondered, you know, what other language um, or what other worlds other languages could bring me to. And I started signing up in college for uh, classes in French. Um, I was interested in taking some classes in Russian because I'd been really interested in Russian culture. And I think it was around that time that my advisor looked at my itinerary, basically, you know, my, my class, my course load, and said, why are you taking all of these languages you already passed out of the language requirement? Um, it doesn't make any sense. Maybe you should be focusing on classes that are in your major, which was psychology at the time. Um, and then I realized, okay, well, how do I, how do I make this into a more coherent story that allows me to just take a lot of languages, which is what I knew that I wanted to do. And then I learned that there was this field of study called linguistics, which is the study of languages. And so I very quickly decided to major in that. And once I chose that major, I realized uh, a lot of the professors were actually Russian. Um, so that definitely solidified my decision to start studying more Russian. And then they, as a linguistics major, we were encouraged to learn a language that is not Indo-European, so not part of the same language family as English or the Romance languages and the Slavic languages are unfortunately still Indo-European. It's not, you know, quite exotic enough, you might say. Um, so I signed up for, well, I was going to decide between Mandarin or Korean, but the Korean class was at 9 a.m. and the Chinese class was at 2 p.m. So as a college student who was not a morning person, um, that made the choice for me. And it's funny, after I ended up in Korea, and after I learned that, you know, the Korean alphabet is much, much easier to learn than Chinese characters, I had this moment thinking, oh, if I had only, you know, how many years ago, 10 years ago, if I had chosen Korean instead of Chinese, my life would be so different right now. Um, potentially, I could have gone a lot farther in the language. Um, although, you know, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. But Yeah, it's, it really was just the time of day that brought me to Chinese. And that was a hugely determining factor in my life after that, because learning Chinese was, that definitely opened up a whole other world for me. In what way? What? How did it change? Did it change the way you looked at language or? Definitely. So I guess it was the reason they wanted us to learn a non-Indo-European language was so that we could better understand 
what language is, if it's not adhering to the same common structures that your language has or, you know, familiar languages have. And it definitely did that for me. Studying Chinese, I realized, oh, okay, languages have different ways of distinguishing meaning. So sometimes languages really depend on consonants and vowels, but sometimes a language can use something like tone. As most people know, Chinese uses tone to change the meaning. So sometimes every consonant in a in a word is the same, every vowel is the same, but it's just the tone that changes the meaning of the word. And that kind of blows your mind. You're like, oh, what, what else is out there? You know, what other distinguishing features can languages use to change the meaning of a word? Um, so it really opens up your mind towards understanding, okay, what is language? And what is just your language? You know, so what, what is specific to your language and what is idiosyncratic to your language and what's universal? And I think, yeah, that, that question of what is universal about language really became something that was very interesting to me and was something that I ended up studying as I got deeper into linguistics. And that's actually what brought me to studying sign language because in the same vein, when you study a language that's in a completely different mode as spoken language, like American Sign Language or Nicaraguan Sign Language, which I also studied, you realize, oh, there's so much more to language that actually has nothing to do with sound. There's sign languages have certain components and certain elements that are very analogous to spoken languages, but just don't use sound. And so that really blew my mind that, oh, wow, there's this universality to language that does not depend on sound at all. It's, it's, it's an intellectual, it's an, it's a, it's a structure. It's, but it's not, it's not dependent on, on sound at all. So that really blew my mind. Mm, it's, it's like a, a passion for expression and communication in general and the curiosity right. about the different ways that it happens. Right. Now I have a question about linguistics. This is because this is interesting to me. In the UK, if you were to take, uh, say, BA linguistics, usually anything by the name of linguistics ends up in something like the English department of a university, and there is very little, or not very little, but there is a very limited attention to maybe the study of foreign languages. Where it's, it sounds like. You know, linguistics is more about the, the science of language and how language works, etc. And stuff like phonology and pragmatics and sociolinguistics and computational and all that kind of thing. Whereas for you, it sounds like there was a lot of foreign language study involved in your study program. Right. Yeah. So I think one big difference between European linguistics programs and the American linguistics programs, although this isn't always the case, but a lot of linguistics programs in Europe are, are kind of housed within a language like English linguistics or German linguistics. Um, whereas uh, most of the American programs are more of a language agnostic program. And it's actually much harder to find courses in a specific language linguistics, um, although you can find them. But yeah, the linguistics program in the programs in the US are usually focused, they're usually housed more in, say, an anthropology department or a psychology department. Um, the linguistics that I chose to focus in were, uh, were housed in the psychology department. Uh, it's basically the study of how language works in the brain. So I was very interested in cognitive linguistics. So how do you acquire language? How do children acquire language? Um, how do, what are the differences between how children and adults acquire language? And what are the evolutionary origins of the way that our brain 
acquires or uses language. That's what was most important to me. But you could also come at it from a completely different angle. You could come at it from the anthropological angle, you know, understanding uh, how language is used in societies or the historical linguistics angle. So tracing how language has changed over generations. I think that's fascinating too. Um, many different kinds of ways that you can approach linguistics. It sounds like a, a polyglot's dream type of degree. Exactly. It, it was. It was. It was completely a dream. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I remember leaving school in Germany, and if you wanted to go and do language-related things at university, you would have had to essentially choose between something like anglistic, English language linguistics, Germanistic, oh. Germanic language linguistics, or Romanistic, Romance language linguistics. And I had studied English, French, and German. You know, and I really wanted to keep English and French and just take more languages and couldn't find anything at university. That's why I didn't go to university in Germany, because for me at that time, given my level of information that I had, there, was, there wasn't anything I could find that would that would suit me. Whereas I think now that I should have probably gone to America. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you would you would have loved this program. And, and, you know, the way that I ended up in linguistics, it was completely by accident. I had a mm -hmm. a friend who lived on my hall said, hey, I'm, I'm going to this course. You know, it's my second day in college. I'm kind of nervous about going. Does anyone want to come with me? And literally, I think I said, "What? what's linguistics? I'd never heard of this before. And she said, oh, it's something about languages. And I said, oh, okay, yeah, I'm, I'm interested in languages. But I really didn't know that there was a whole study dedicated to how languages work. And, and I remember sitting, you know, and watching this professor go through different examples coming from all these different languages. Like at first he said, oh, so Spanish has this, you know, element that works like this. And then Tongan has this. And, and I was just getting more and more excited. I could not believe that there was actually a field of study devoted to this. And yeah, it was, it was a very exciting moment um, when I realized that I could completely nerd out about this for the next four years and actually have a legitimate reason to study lots of languages and understand their structures and and then work hard at learning them so that I could actually be able to use them. So yeah, it was, it was like you said, a complete dream. Did your degree include time abroad? Yeah. So I did a semester in Salamanca in Spain. Um, and so I did get to do some Spanish linguistics there while I was there. Um, yeah, that was a great part, great part of the program. Now, I know you as this sort of world travel ceremonia, you know, <laughs> but it's like my friend who's just living somewhere. I don't really know where, possibly Beijing, <laughs> possibly so, Poss you know, even your bio in the time that in the, since the last year, when we last had your voice on the podcast, your bio needs updating because you live somewhere else. You know, so in my head, you're a bit of a like digital nomad type person because you also work from your laptop and I wonder if there was a sort of turning point that that gave you this idea that you don't have to live or that you're not going to live where you grew up. Yeah, I hmm, it'd be hard to put my finger on what the exact moment was, but I think my first experience in Spain definitely showed me that living abroad was not nearly as overwhelming or as difficult as I had thought it was going to be, you know, that pretty much and of course, it'll always depend on the place that you decide to go live. But, 
you know, the difference between Madrid and New York is, you know, negligible. There's obviously huge cultural differences mm-hmm. and there's amazing, you know, places that you can go to visit that are very different, but your actual day-to-day life, you know, you still get money out from ATMs, you still ride the subway, like the day-to-day life was really not that different. And so then the more that I traveled and the more that I saw how easy it was to just kind of insert yourself into a new country, um, even if you don't know the language, you know, a lot of people are really daunted by the idea of moving to a country where they don't know the language, but depending on the country, a lot of countries are still, I mean, the infrastructure is often still good enough that you can just kind of insert yourself there and, uh, and get by until you do know enough. When I first moved to Korea, that was the first time that I'd moved somewhere without knowing any of the language. And it was a little bit daunting at first, you know, sometimes you have interactions where you go up with your little phrase book and you do your best, but you just have to, in the end, back away because, you know, there's no way you're that you're going to make yourself understood. But then you realize that that's not the end of the world, you know, you still survive. Um, now, that said, um, you know, I am a native English speaker, so I know that the experience of people that are not native English speakers can be a little bit different because Mm -hmm. I do have this language that I can fall back on that, you know, in a real emergency situation, it's often not that hard to find someone that speaks English. So that was something that was also really interesting to me as I started traveling more and meeting people from other countries and learning that for a lot of people, especially in Korea, a lot of people felt like they had to at least learn English before they even learned Korean because they wanted to make sure that they had at least, you know, a backup emergency language in just in case they really needed to be able to communicate. So I think English speakers are are very privileged in that way. So I, I do feel very grateful about that. But but yeah, I once I tried that out and once I traveled a little more, you know, I have this I have this illness that Whenever I touch down in a new city, if I like it at all, I start start thinking about, oh, what would it be like to live here? And you know, very often I can, I'm like ready to do it. I'm like, oh yeah, I could, I could totally see myself living here. I think it'd be really cool to build a routine in this country and you know, learn how to take the subway to work. And yeah, I'm really entranced by the idea of having routines in new countries and then building a new circle of friends. And yeah, it's, I just, it's so. It's so enticing. And, and I think that's what really pulled me into the digital nomad life. Um, you know, I was based in Seoul for about six years, but probably the last two years, um, I was almost constantly on the road, um, partially for work. Sometimes I'd tag along with my husband's work. Um, but it got to the point where I was probably home maybe a week out of every month at most. And we were just taking as much possible advantage of any kind of opportunity uh, to travel and spending sometimes a week here or sometimes, you know, even a couple months. We spent a couple months in Malaysia last year living in Malacca. And we realized it's, yeah, it's, I think the big turning point for me was realizing that it's not as hard as you might think to do that, to just plunk yourself down in a new country for a month and, you know, work from there. If you could, as long as you can work online, mm-hmm. um, as long as you can work remotely, you can do that. The only thing that really gets in your way is the time zone sometimes, but, um, yeah, there's all kinds of strategies you can use to make sure that, you know, you've got your health taken care of, you've got your finances taken care of. And, um, yeah, it's actually not as overwhelming as you might think. 
For many people, it does sound really scary. I mean, I've just moved house, and that nearly that nearly broke <laughs> nearly broke me. And I'm I've I've moved house obviously between countries and things like that before, and I'm still a lot less of a settler than than, for example, my partner. But oh, I don't know. I don't know. Okay, so what if I wanted to, or if if a listener was interested in let's say, living that life and perhaps spending two or three years on the road, moving between different countries. We're all language lovers. So we're just so, so eager, you know. What makes traveling and living abroad easier? Okay, let's go through a few categories. What would you recommend somebody buys that really makes your life easier? Mm. Oh man, it'll be different for every person, but um, (laughs) I'm trying to think what's the one thing that's really made a difference for me? I guess um, having a portable Wi-Fi hotspot really makes a difference. Um, So I have a Skyroam. It's just a cute little orange disc that connects to Wi-Fi in pretty much, well, not not most countries, but a lot of, pretty much every country that I've been to in the last two years. And I think that's, I think I worked from about 12 countries at least in the last two years. And uh, it just made it so easy because, you know, as soon as the plane lands, if for some reason you don't have international roaming or, you know, if as long if you need internet right away, you have that. You don't need to go looking through the airport to buy a SIM card, you know, trying to figure out how to install it. You don't have to deal with any of that. And if you're looking for a place to work in that new city and, you know, you can't find a restaurant that has Wi-Fi or a cafe that has Wi-Fi, you always have that to fall back on. Or if there's any kind of emergency, you always have that to fall back on. So that was really helpful for me. It's, uh, you pay a monthly fee, sort of like a phone subscription and, uh, and it gives you internet wherever you go. So that, that definitely made things easier for me. Mm, a sky roam. Now, what would you recommend for somebody to read? To read, um, I would definitely read up as much as possible on wherever you want to go, the country where you want to go. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm a simple girl. I really like the Lonely Planet series. I, I like that they lay everything out very simply, and they always have a nice section at the end of the guidebook that sort of gives you the concise history of the country, which I think is so important just to kind of situate yourself a little bit and understand. What's the modern political situation like? Um, you know, where, what's the context of everything that you're going to see and what's the context of the way people think? It's so important to get that concise history if you don't know it already. And then once I've gone through that book, I like to read a little bit of, you know, any kind of literature that will set the scene so I can kind of get a sense of what I'm expecting to see like what's the you know everything from the weather and the scenery to the way that people interact with each other so you know before i moved to korea it was so helpful to just read a ton of books about korea and korean culture and you know novels that were set in korea um just to kind of get a sense of how people interact because other countries often there will be certain social cues that don't work in the same way as your own country And sometimes, even if you know the language, or even if you don't know the language, those social cues will be even more important than what you're actually saying. And uh, so I always like to try to make sure that I can be as accommodating of that and, and as informed as possible before I insert myself into a new country. 
Mm, those are good tips. Those are really good tips. Is there a website that you always look at when you touch down in the new country? <laughs> um, yeah, actually, the website that I use the most um, is a website that I use to um, find the best cafes to work in. <laughs> um, and actually, I'm kind of blanking on it right now on the actual name, but I can definitely give it to you after the show so you can put it in the show notes um, if it doesn't come to me, but it's a blog that is, uh, pretty well established. I think they have a lot of people writing for them. And, uh, I always look to find which cafes will be good for laptops. Um, cause that's pretty much, you know, when I travel, I'm, I don't travel to be on vacation. You know, I, I'm pretty much always working, especially because I'm running this company. So, I don't, it's not like I have endless time to sit on a beach. So just because I'm traveling doesn't mean that I'm spending all day, you know, traipsing around being a tourist. So usually when I get to a place, I really do need to find a good place to work, but I also kind of want to be able to soak up the atmosphere. So mm -hmm. I try to find a cafe where I can plunk myself down, you know, plunk down at 9am and I can get a few hours of work done and then maybe walk around a little bit at lunch And then find maybe find another cafe to sit down and do a little bit of work in for a few hours so that I can get in a full work day, but still sort of be in the middle of society and still be kind of people watching a little bit and enjoying some of the local food. And that for me, that's my favorite way to travel because it still feels like I'm being a useful member of society. Um, and but without holding myself up in a hotel or, or co-working space, and I can still sort of experience the culture. So yeah, so I'll give you the website. So you can put it in the links since I'm blanking on it now, but it's a good one to, I always just plug in, you know, um, Kiev cafe, you know, laptops so mm -hmm. I can find a good place to work. Yeah. It's good to have a few websites like that kind of up your sleeve. So I'm, I'm, I'm open. I'm not open. I'm eager to hear a few new ones. Definitely. That one that I always check is happy cow. Because I'm a vegetarian, mm. and as a vegetarian who travels, Happy Cow is is a godsend. I found such great veggie restaurants from like Lisbon to Moscow in Moscow, because there's there's mm -hmm. usually always some kind of um, hippie, Hindu inspired type community or sort of meditation community, and they often run the like the Osho Cafe or something like that. Mm. You can and, and they're always on Happy Cow, so it's great to kind of build up a little bit of a list. I can't wait to I can't wait to till you remember. <laughs> and listeners, <laughs> it's going to be at Fluent Show, so we'll put that on there as well. Oh, and it just came to me. It's the Culture Trip. The Culture Trip. Yeah, theculturetrip.com. So I just really like how they lay out their, you know, it's very clean listicles that show you the, the a little picture of the place. And then it has, you know, the location and, uh, and they're really extensive. So they have, they have a lot of information for a lot of different places and not just a lot of different places and not just for cafes, um, but, you know, for restaurants and a lot of other things that are related to travel. So yeah, I find them very useful. As a language learner and somebody who is very eager to really learn the local language and become involved and connect with people locally. Do you find expat communities helpful or less so? Yeah, I, I definitely find them helpful. Um, but you do have to take into account how that's going to affect your language learning. So when I first moved to Spain, I made a really conscious effort not to 
plug myself into the expat community because I was desperate at that point to make some progress in Spanish. So I really um, worked hard to build a Spanish community of friends um, because luckily I was at a level where I could communicate, if not very gracefully, but I could communicate. So, so I did end up coming up with a pretty nice group of Spanish friends and I avoided the expat scene. But when I moved to Korea, my Korean was just not at a level where I would be able to um, insert myself into a Korean social environment. Um, at least not at my age. I probably could have done it in my 20s when I cared a little bit less. But this is another topic that, you know, I think we've talked about a few times, but what it's like to learn languages either when you're older or when you're a little bit more of an introvert or when you're <laughs> yeah. single. Um, older, it's, it's a really different scene, right? So <laughs> when I got to Korea, I just, you know, I was no longer in a phase of life where I was happy to just you know, be in a bar screaming out the 10 words that I know, you know, like, oh, you guys are great. Oh, do you like beer? I like beer. Like, actually, when I was learning Chinese, I was in that phase. And I think it <laughs> helped my Chinese a lot to be in that phase. Mm -hmm. But when you get a little bit older, you, you lose a little, you lose some of your patience for that, um, which is really unfortunate, because it's a very effective way to learn a language. Um, but it is. It um, is. When it, yeah. But when I got to Korea, I was no longer willing to do that. And uh, so I did insert myself into the expat scene. And it's very supportive. I mean, you, you want to have a community where you go. So you want to be realistic about how you can build that community, whether you can build a, a local community or whether you need to be with expats. And I think the most important thing is just, you know, that you support yourself however you need it and make sure that you have, uh, yeah, a community. Um, and if you're able to find a local community, then that's great because it'll really help your language learning. And also it'll make your experience, you know, a lot more authentic, but you can completely be realistic about what your linguistic abilities are and do what works for you. Now, when you, when you arrived in Beijing, you pretty much got locked in straight away because of the coronavirus crisis. Have you had a chance to go out and connect or <laughs> do you have plans? Yeah, um, yeah, that that is really how it happened. And pretty much as soon as actually, I knew before flying back, that I knew what I was flying into. So we had actually moved in August, but I'd been pretty much on the road nonstop um, for the following months. And then it got to the point where I was starting to hear about this virus. It was starting to spread. Um, you, I heard that the US was considering starting to cut flights. And at that point, I was in the US as working uh, out of San Francisco on a project. And I realized, oh, if I don't get back to China now, there is a chance that I might not be able to go for several months. And, you know, my husband was in China, my dog was in China, and I just didn't want to get cut off from them. So I flew back into it on one of the last flights coming from the US. And yeah, pretty much immediately got locked down. Um, by the time I was on the flight, everyone was wearing masks. And I think it had finally hit Asia um, in terms of understanding how serious it was going to be. So as soon as I got off the plane, you know, showered, put all my clothes in a bag, and it had gotten to the point where we were pretty concerned already. So and soon after that, um, the Chinese government encouraged people to stay at home and to start social distancing and uh, started um, imposing different kinds of restrictions to help uh, stop the spread of the virus. So pretty much right away was stuck at home. Now, yeah. luckily, 
uh, I'm pretty content. I, I can definitely go into hermit mode pretty easily because I, you know, I have plenty of stuff to do. I with all the languages that I want to work on, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy as long as I have internet connection. Um, I can definitely keep myself busy, but. Yeah, it was kind of sad that I couldn't uh, immediately be taking advantage of my new environment. I had, I have lived in Beijing before, so um, it's not completely new to me. But Beijing is just—it's one of those cities that reinvents itself. It feels like every year it's a completely new animal. So I'm so excited that now it's—you know—I don't want to jinx anything. But it is starting to feel optimistic here. Like we might soon be able to go back to a somewhat normal life, whatever that means.、Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm really excited to see, you know, what Beijing looks like now because China just—it's、uh, just hurtling into the future in all kinds of exciting ways. And the way that you interact in society is totally different from the way that you do did it back in 2008 when I was last. Living here, wow!、Um, like for example, one of the biggest things is just the way that you pay for things. So when I was first living here in 2008, you know, used cash nearly all the time. My my credit cards didn't really work in a lot of places. They only accepted domestic cards, or they just didn't really accept cards at all. But by a few years ago, they started using、uh, WeChat, which probably many of your listeners have probably heard of. It's like a chat. App that has many other functionalities, including payments, and now it's gotten to the point where really people don't want to accept cash. They also won't accept cards because they only accept domestic cards in most places.、Um, really, they only want to get paid by WeChat. So it's really, and it, especially because of the coronavirus, now they they really have doubled down on that. They don't want to see any cash because cash has the potential of carrying germs. So without WeChat, without the ability to pay by WeChat, you're really、um, kind of in a, you're, you're in a tough spot. It's it's really hard to pay for anything. So actually, just today, I finally got my you know now that restrictions are being lifted and we can go out and about and everything is opening back up, I was finally able to go to the bank and open up my bank account and、Yay. finally get that hooked up to my WeChat Pay. So I am finally a, a functioning member of Chinese society, and, and that was really exciting. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very excited to finally get to explore my new home and and see what it looks like now. That's really cool. <laughs> I wonder. I wonder what the impact of that is going to be on Germany, which is still a society where card payments was not trusted、right. in the same way. Like、we're old、right. school in Germany. Well, we'll we'll see how that turns out now. <laughs> does anyone do? Do anyone mention? Does anyone mention being afraid of cash carrying germs? Is that a, a concern in Germany? You know, I I look at、um, generally how how Germany reports on the the health situation that we're in at the moment, the global. Coronavirus. I am dating this podcast, and I will be putting it out very soon, <laughs> so, that、mm-hmm. so that it's still relevant. And something that the thing that I'm finding the most is that the reporting compared to the UK focuses a lot more on recovery numbers and is more eager to be. How do I put it?、Um, sort of sober. You know,、mm. not it's less, and and they talk a lot about like we don't want to 
panic people. There is no need to, you know, like the, they are very wary of being alarmist. And this is generally a tenor of German media versus British media, which is the two countries that I know well. Uh, British media tends to be, because it's got really, it's it's got a pretty intense tabloid experience here in Britain, where basically newspaper headlines just scream at you all the time. And th this is like in normal life, you know, not just during a coronavirus crisis. This, this <laughs> On the Daily Mail cover, this guarantee you three times a week, they'll have something new that basically has given you cancer already and you should possibly sue somebody. And it it's to do with foreigners probably. But how do, I don't know. Like in Germany, yes, we have tabloids and yes, we've got silly reporting, but it's more sober on the whole. What's the media landscape like in China? Can you can you relate to the media landscape as a Chinese speaker? Yes, it's it's really interesting. Um, it's a very interesting landscape. They definitely see things through a, a different lens than a lot of mm -hmm. Western media. So for me, I guess it's been interesting because since this started in China, everything started through that Chinese lens. You know, the Western media was vaguely interested, but um, not paying that much attention to it until it really hit Europe and hit the US. So my whole experience was mostly in the, the Chinese social media world. So seeing what people were talking about. And actually, in some ways, it was funny to see all of that echoed just a couple months later. So, you know, we went into isolation. And after a week or two, you know, started making the same kind of discoveries as our Western counterparts would a couple months later. So, oh, how are we going to live our lives um, stuck inside? You know, how do we walk our dogs? How do we, what kind of precautions are, do we feel safe taking? Um, how do we, you know, what are we cooking in quarantine? That sort of thing. So I was on all those Chinese social media apps, you know, there's uh, China uses Weibo, which is sort of like their Twitter, mm. but a much more uh, full featured Twitter, sort of like Twitter on steroids. And then there's WeChat, which functions a little bit like Facebook, you could say. Um, there's a whole bunch of interesting social media apps that China uses. And I was using those um, to get kind of the Chinese perspective. And then, of course, there's also just the perspective of other expats living in Asia. And then a couple months later, when it hit Europe and hit the US, it was really funny to actually see a lot of these same ideas being, you know, spoken about in in Western social media. Um, it sort of felt a lot like deja vu. And I heard that from a lot of people that were in China. They're saying, oh, isn't it funny how suddenly it feels like it's happening a second time and we're hearing the same things go around, the same observations going around. Mm -hmm. But but yeah, in some ways there's there's a really universal aspect to how this virus has affected everyone's lives. Um, but it also really reveals a lot of cultural um, differences. Um, so that's it's been an interesting lens. Would you? We, we've not really talked a lot about your particular languages, and I'm I'm aware of that. So we'll we'll get to, we'll get to that <laughs> now. <laughs> it's just there's so many aspects of uh, your your life and your experience that are so interesting to talk about. But what oh, I want to, <laughs> I yeah, we could sit here for hours. I know. And listeners, can I just recommend because we're not going to get into entrepreneurship and how Sarah founded a company and became like 
hashtag boss i have to stop hash- saying hashtag boss babe i think it's hilarious though okay so how sarah started sarah maria started her company there is a related episode in the actual fluency podcast so i recommend you if you're more curious about that aspect of sarah maria's life just listen to that one because we're not going to have the time to get to it now <laughs> so i'm going to put that in the show notes as well shout out to the actual fluency podcast and chris uh, who sarah maria had a conversation with as well so let me let me ask you about I hope I've still got you. Let me ask you about learning Chinese and in particular you've mentioned social media. So this might be an interesting an interesting kind of moment to say like um how did you go about learning Chinese and you know I've been struggling for a little while. You got any tips for me? <laughs> and where <laughs> you know what is what is an authentic kind of accessible way to connect with China from anywhere around the world. Yeah, social media apps I think are a great way to do it just to sort of get a sense of what people are talking about. Um and of course that'll depend on your language level and uh especially your reading level. And the reason why I got into social media um is particularly because my reading level is uh so poor. Um when I started learning Chinese, as so I started in college, and made great progress while I was in college because of course our and when I say college I, I mean university I know that outside of America most people say university um but yeah I was highly motivated because I had quizzes every week and tests and the teachers were making us write out those characters you know 1500 times 15000 times every day um but once i left college i i spent a few months living in beijing and i was living with a host family that didn't speak any english and that was really where my speaking ability skyrocketed you could say um uh it's a little bit self-aggrandizing maybe to use that verb but um it really the pa- the family that i was living with were so patient with me and were really really helped me develop that and once my speaking ability um improved i felt much less of a impetus to really deal with those characters i mean you know how hard those characters are how much time they take and how painful they are not just to learn but to retain <laughs> you know if you don't continually work on them and if you don't continually use them they evaporate because they're not like an alphabet they're not based directly on the sound of the words so you really do have to memorize each character um and if you don't use them all the time then you forget them so yeah so i backslid a lot in my reading ability and it got to the point where when i was signing up for chinese classes after that you know they would hear me talk and they would immediately put me in the advanced class they wouldn't even test me they'd try to put me right in the most advanced class and i'd have to tell them um well actually you know take a look at my handwriting or actually you know i can only recognize so many words and then they were pretty confu- they didn't know where to put me because my speaking ability was pretty high but my uh reading and writing was like a second graders so i used social media to really um help try to get myself reading faster and try to make sure that i was being exposed to a lot of reading every day because as i've found you know with with social media as long as you have that that pull to to scroll that obsession with scrolling then you can you can absorb so much information in a short time 
So I'm still definitely not anywhere near my level in English in terms of ability to scan characters quickly, mm-hmm. but I'm definitely, it's definitely helping me to just be exposed to characters more and definitely to read faster and to recognize words that are a little more slangy and a little less formal. So it's definitely helped with that. So if you're interested in using social media, I actually, I do have a blog post that's specifically devoted to how to use social media to learn Chinese. So you can find that on my blog. Um, and I talk there about uh, Weibo, which is uh, the Twitter-like social media app. I definitely recommend that as a place where you could go. Um, otherwise, there's lots of other ones. There's Red, Xiaohongshu. Uh, um, there's lots of other different social media apps that are really they're just not quite the same or not quite analogous to their Western counterparts. So even just that really opens up a fascinating world. I, I definitely recommend looking into it. That's really cool. Yeah, no, good one. And it reminds me of a, the, the, a discussion that we sometimes have on, on the podcast about learning methods or learning slash teaching methods. We talk about extensive and intensive reading and the way that you say, like, as long as you've got the pull to scroll and you just kind of want to scroll through you you get the benefit of that extensive reading whereas because my level is is fairly low my my tendency is that to want to to you know to 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 want to really dig into every single bit even the bits where i don't understand and with chinese i often find that an expression that means um, like I'm not quite uh, au fait with all the expressions and the way that they are structured. So it might be something like, I haven't met this person yet. And they say like, I am without this person, see, meet, <laughs> le, random marker that I don't understand. You know, it's just like, how, why, what? And, and it makes you feel discouraged because it makes me feel like I can never, ever make a sentence in Chinese because it makes just no sense to me. I can just about work out what is happening if I've got translation next to it. But that's, that is an intensive reading experience. You know, that is just kind of like, I really want to dig into this and work out what it means. Or if I just, exactly. want, if I just looked at it and I went, oh, okay, this sort of means that there is a benefit to that. And social media seems to be a great tool that you've used for, for those effects. Definitely. And especially with a language like Chinese, a language that has a really different structure from your from your mother language. Um, like you said, there's all these kind of rules that, I mean, it might take you a whole college career to learn each rule individually. And oh, you're just not going to be able to speak the language <laughs> if you if you have to learn it that way. There's so much that you want to just be able to learn by absorption and by exposure and just by seeing it so many times that it starts to sort of make sense. So social media is really, really good for that. And I mean, if you just think about how many words or how many new expressions you pick up in your mother tongue or from probably for you in English too. Um, you know, I've lived outside of the U.S. now for for almost a decade, but there's still all kinds of new slang that comes up every year that I can stay on top of because of social media, you know? So mm-hmm. when I go back to the U.S., people are saying all kinds of crazy new things that they didn't say when I was living there, but I can pretty fluently keep up because I've been reading, you know, their Instagram posts and I've been seeing their Twitter. Um, so it's, it's, it's a really good way to just stay exposed and to learn by absorption or by osmosis instead of having to be too rule-based. Very true. 
very true. And oh gosh, I, I love this. I love the the this reminder that the language that we you know, when you when you move abroad, because I'm the same with German, and I think it happens to all of us. So listeners, if you've ever lived in a, even away from home in a different location, you'll know that the language you spoke when you moved there, whenever you go back, is not the language that everybody else speaks anymore. Right. It's a mystery. So have you found, have you found that um, there's all this new German slang that you've learned sort of by social media, but hadn't actually used since you're living in the UK? Not social media so much. Mm, I think mostly it's the thing I noticed with Germany, because I've been away for so long, is two things. One is that all of my speaking habits have anglicized. So I hedge more. I say please and thank you much, much more. Mm. And But whenever I work with Germans, the directness, the... I just know what they mean when they say something and I feel very mm. comforted by that. So it still makes me feel very comfort comfortable. I still maintain this kind of social sensibility of a German person. But the way I speak has picked up a lot of English conversation habits and English conversation, um, the English melody as well. So I don't, why would I go up at the end of a mm. sentence <laughs> in German? What? Yeah, so so that that I've picked up and then... In terms of the way I express myself and the, not maturity, but the, the, the purposes for which I used to use language is when I left Germany, I spoke like a 20-year-old. I lived like a 20-year-old. My life needed a 20-year-old's skills. Mm -hmm. Now I'm way past that. And I don't have always on hand instantly the german <laughs> you know um kind of when i'm running a retreat or something the kind of boss language that you need for that i have to i have to feel my way into it rather than having it on hand instantly wow does that make sense yeah yeah that's fascinating <laughs> yes so you kind of you just i i heard somewhere that whatever age you leave your home country your language development kind of stops there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And They've I done lots of studies that. on that. Yeah. Mm, mm, that's, that's sort of how I feel. That's sort of how, how, where I'm stuck. So about your, your life and living in, not just living in China, but kind of generally moving around and the language world that you live in. I wonder if there is something that, what sort of keeps you up at night? What is a problem that you would love to to solve about it? Not just your life individually, but kind of the world and how the world is that you experience. Oh, man, that's a big question. Um, well, I mean, this might be a good point to segue into our thoughts about women in the world, um, which I know is uh, a topic that's close to your heart as well. Mm. Um, Being and this one, is something, what can we do, right? Yeah, exactly. Meibanfa, <laughs> as I would say in Chinese, like there's nothing, there's no option. Um, there's no way to get around it. Well, there there are a few ways to get around it, but I'm I'm quite happy staying the way that I am. Um, so yeah, I mean, the role of of a woman in the world, it, it's a really unique situation in every country that you go to, and I think that's what's really driven at home for me. 
um, seeing how I'm treated as a woman in different countries and, and what is different and what stays the same. Um, so something that I guess I've become really passionate about is trying to help other women um, be more comfortable with pursuing their passions and mm -hmm. whether that is language or whether that's entrepreneurship, but I think probably most relevant to your listeners is, is in language. I think a lot of women um, feel uncomfortable with being labeled or labeling themselves a polyglot or even accepting the fact that they speak a lot of languages and telling other people that they speak a lot of languages. I think there have been several studies that show that uh, women are socially penalized more than men are when they exhibit any kind of behavior that could be seen as self-promoting. So if someone asks you, oh, you know, how do you spend your time? What, what are your hobbies? And if you want to truthfully answer, oh, I study languages. Oh, what languages do you speak? Uh, oh, you know, Spanish, Chinese, uh, Korean. If a girl gets to that, if a woman gets to that point where she's listing languages that she speaks, there's a lot of, a lot of people feel very, a lot of women feel very sensitive about that. And like, they have to exhibit this false modesty and this false um, humility, and they don't get to just own the hard work that they've done to learn those languages. And uh, so that's something that, that I'm very passionate about is, is kind of trying to spread the word that women can be just as big nerds as men can. And, and it doesn't take away from, you know, their femininity or their likability. Um, so I, yeah, I just love to, I just love to spread the word about that and try to make it more, make language learning more accessible to women and, and let them own their abilities. This reminds me of something that you did in this very conversation where you talked about your conversation skills skyrocketing and instantly picked up on it and mm. went, oh, well, maybe that's a bit grand. Right, exactly. And I caught myself in that moment. I said, don't apologize for it. Don't apologize for it. And then I did it anyway, <laughs> because I just, I knew that people would hear it and think, oh man, this woman is so <laughs> full of herself. And here's the thing, like, I would love to be able to qualify every statement that I give. So if people ask me which languages I speak, I would love to be able to say, well, my speaking ability is this, my writing ability is this, mm -hmm. you know, I can communicate well uh, with a professor, but I can't really talk to a two-year-old. You know, I'd love to be able to qualify every little facet of my abilities so that I'm never overselling myself. Um, and so I'm never over promoting myself. And so I'm being completely truthful but no one wants to hear all of that, right? No one's, they're not that interested. You know, <laughs> half the time, if, if they asked you which languages they speak, you speak, they're not actually that interested in which languages you speak. They might just be making polite conversation. So you have to kind of learn how to navigate that, especially as a language learner, um, you know, in a socially acceptable way that hopefully retains your likability. But, but that's also true to yourself, you know, that that's true to the hard work that you've put into it. Because as we know, um, learning a language, there are some people that are just talented at it, but everyone that I know that is good at languages is good at it because they put a lot of work into it. You know, it's, it's like musicians, maybe there are people that are talented, but they work their butts off to be able to play at the level that they can. And so it's just, it's, it's sad for anyone to have to try to hide that. So, yeah. For you as the boss of a company that employs a lot of translators, 
do you find that 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 is across the board a kind of self-declaration difference? Mm, that's really interesting. Um, yeah, so the translation community is heavily, heavily female, um, what's the word, not oriented, but there are many more female translators than male yes. translators. But you do definitely see when you go to conferences um, or even on social media that the loudest voices tend to be the men. Um, and I have nothing against that on the men's side. I think, yeah, the men should be selling their abilities and they should be speaking up. But, um, but I really want to see more women doing that as well and, and not being penalized for it. So yeah, there, there definitely are, there's way more women, um, in the industry, but actually, actually lost my train of thought. What was your exact question about this? <laughs> it was, it was more about whether, whether you can see, whether whether you find that your male freelancers staff declare their language skills with more mm, confidence yes. even even in professional yes. contexts oh this is yeah there's i have great examples of this i mean we get probably about 50 cvs mailed into us per day now um, from freelancers that would like to work with meridian linguistics And, um, definitely across the board, you'll find men listing way more languages than the women do. Wow. Um, and when you actually dig deeper into that and you find out, okay, well, what is your level? You know, which proficiency tests have you passed? Um, you know, which, you know, do the sample translation. Let's see how you do across the board. Um, men seem to definitely seem to oversell their abilities a little bit more and women seem to undersell their abilities. And that's, that's my experience running this company for about six years. Um, that's been a really, really strong uh, trend that we see nearly all the time. So, you know, we definitely take that into account when we're, when we're evaluating candidates. And luckily right now, kind of accidentally, we have a all woman team. Um, and that's not, it doesn't have to stay that way. Um, didn't mean for it to be that way, but I think it does help, um, especially when we're evaluating new freelancers and, and judging whether they're going to be appropriate for a certain project or not, we know to look out for that and to not discount the possibility that a new freelancer may actually have more going for her than she's initially telling us. Um, and, you know, to sort of be ready to try to pull that out of our female candidates and say, actually, do you think you might be able to try this? Mm -hmm. And, you know, of course we always test our translators. We have a really rigorous quality assurance process, but it can be really exciting when um, you're actually able to show a female linguist that she can do a lot more than she was initially promoting. So that, that can be exciting. It's something that I have found uh, with, with women in language, which do, with the online conference that we run, Is, is not that obviously you know because it's a because it's an all female lineup of speakers you don't really get you still get people putting themselves forward but i found that we have benefited a lot from a similar approach which is this kind of offering a female this kind of sounding board or just like i get the question would this topic be okay would this be okay would you be happy for me to do this you know the, this this eagerness to please and and it's very very important just to emphasize again because um i have at least four male listeners rolling their eyes right now i bet and fine <laughs> you know you you guys can live with that that's fine um <laughs> 
we'll we're all get over it but it's it's not in the nature of the person to be one way or the other it is there was a lot of socialization in there and there's a lot of um the, the way that we communicate and that we've been trained to communicate and it's like you say if we put not just male but female persons in power and this this translates in in my mind to the world they are able to look out for that and they are able to spot the to spot that kind of uh, um 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 and the hesitancy of of proclaiming your your particular skill that you you actually have but you don't quite know how to say i have this skill without fearing the consequences of saying that you have that skill right and i think i think at least one speaker at the conference i can't remember exactly who it was but I do remember hearing someone say, oh, before I was invited to be at this conference, I didn't really think that anyone would be interested in hearing what I had to say. And I thought that was so funny because I remember thinking, wow, but of course this person would have something interesting to say. Like, look at their background, look at their experiences, look at their abilities. Mm -hmm. But it's the sort of thing that I think women, and you know, once again, not because we're biologically this way, but I think because we've been socialized this way, um, we feel like we need to match like 100% or 120% of the qualifications for any given job or position or opportunity Mm -hmm. before we feel like we're appropriate for it. And often, you know, often the success of a woman, I think, lies in being a little bit lucky that someone actually went out of their way to say, hey, actually, you can do this, by the way, you know, you you deserve this position, you have the skills. Um, because if you want to grow in any career, you do have to reach out a little bit beyond your comfort zone. And um, yeah, I think that's one thing that's really exciting about the Women in Language Conference is that you're you're giving that opportunity to so many women that are so overqualified already, but maybe just didn't even know that anyone would be interested in hearing what they have to say. And that's serving as a launching board, you know, a launching pad for them to do so many exciting things after that, you know, maybe they would never have gotten the opportunity to do. So I think it's really important you know, when you notice that a woman has any kind of talent or ability that you call that out and you tell them, Hey, by the way, just in case you didn't know, maybe you already know, but mm-hmm. this is really impressive. This thing that you're doing, or this is really impressive. This, this skill that you have, you know, it's really important to call that out and remind women that they have that ability so that they can build the confidence to, to reach out for more opportunities. A hundred percent. And with women in language it's it's coming to the point now and also like the other thing is as a female when you put that much effort in putting yourself forward it's it's so much more devastating when then it doesn't work out so a challenge that i can see coming for women in language that i'm ready for and i look forward to is a point where there aren't enough speaking slots to just say yes to everybody. Mm, and instead yeah. we, we do have to start discriminating and we used to have to start thinking what fits the con- the type of conference that we want to make happen here. And then to communicate, this is so important again, perhaps with women, not just with women, of course not, but as we've just expressed, like for, for women, it's a risk to put yourself out there or a perceived risk. And then that perceived risk needs to be rewarded. And when it's not, it's, it's a difficult way of communicating so I'm already thinking about how do I best communicate to somebody what you have is worthy is interesting Mm -hmm. is awesome is not what I want right now (laughs) (laughs) and 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 the encouragement that needs to come with that of keep offering yourself up 
you know, like don't, yeah. don't stop now because once you've, and, and this is just my, um, <laughs> I guess Kirsten and Kirsten Sarah Maria's platform. I was around the speaker's corner. It's really keep putting yourself forward, even when people say no. And that is so hard. Yes. And I think as a guy, yes. you're just more used to people will say no and it doesn't mean anything about you. Whereas as a as a girl, woman, right. people will say no and you'll make it mean the world about you. Right, exactly. And so exactly what you're saying is it'll be important for you to know how to, you know, do those rejections in a way that doesn't chip away at their confidence, but it'll also help build their resilience because yeah, we women do need to learn how to be rejected mm -hmm. from opportunities like this. We do need to learn how to deal with that and to not take it personally, as you say, um, to understand that a lot of rejection is just due to circumstance and to figure out how to discriminate between when you need to just work harder or when maybe that wasn't the right opportunity for you or when it was just bad luck, you know, and, and don't take it personally. And the more opportunities we have, the better we'll get at that. I think right now, um, as we kind of claw our way up into new roles, we just ha we still haven't quite developed a strong sense of knowing, oh, really, it is me. I'm just not good enough for this. Or no, it's just circumstance. And mm -hmm. the more opportunities we have, the better we'll get at that. And the more resilience we'll build. And yeah, the, the more we'll put, a, put ourselves out there. And even if you're just not good enough for the thing that you put yourself forward for, I mean... Who cares, right? Go and put yourself forward for something else. <laughs> You'll be good enough for yeah. the next thing. Exactly. And what a what a great message to to conclude on or to start concluding on for language learners as well. You know, no matter if you're male, female, in between, I don't care. It's it's a common, common, common fear. This we make the mistakes and in its very similar situation, actually, we make ourselves so vulnerable. So that other people can pick up on our mistakes and other people will hear our mistakes and oh my god and what are they going to think and people are going to think I'm stupid and I can only express myself in this idiot way and all these thoughts right. that go through your mind how similar that is yeah and it's, it's so relevant to language learning as well like you know all those mistakes that you're making are all the times that you don't speak up because you're going to reveal your lack of ability in a certain language um, it's so important that you do it anyway it's so important that you put yourself out there because if you don't speak, you're not going to learn. So yeah, it's, it's, it's relevant to so many facets of your life, but especially for language learning. Mm. So our conclusion, our, our big piece of advice for all of you, no matter who you are, just put yourselves out there, you know, keep, keep, keep believing in yourself. What is it? Jiayou <laughs> is uh, to add oil, and that's what that's what the Chinese say when they want to give encouragement. So it's it's something that we're hearing a lot right now. You know, in these difficult times, they'll say Zhongguo Jiayou, like go China, basically, like fighting China, um, <laughs> like keep your chin up, basically. Zhongguo Jiayou. Yeah. You know what? You know where I've heard that before. Ultimate Beastmaster on Netflix. <laughs> don't know what that is but i'm sh I'm sure that's true it's an athletics parkour competition type show that is produced by sylvester stallone and Whoa. yeah it's so good it's so funny and it brings and you must get it in china right because it's got the chinese competitors so there's competitors from various different countries and each of the countries has got a commentary box and they subtitle the commentary 
mm-hmm. rather than oh, rather cool. than dubbing over it. So you'll hear the Germans going like, "Ja, mach weiter und er läuft weiter. Oh, es sieht sehr gut aus, sieht sehr gut aus. Oh nein!" And then you get the Spanish ones next to them, and you get the "Junko Jayo." Oh my goodness, this is a language learner's dream. Yes, and it is great entertainment. It is a, it is just such a. It, I mean, it's very impressive show. It's one of those. I don't know. It's one of those parkour, you know, where they have to climb something that looks impossible to climb and then jump over a crazy distance and then swing off this particular thing. And everyone who competes is this just like super human seeming athletes. It is so exciting to watch. It's so much fun to watch, but also just happens to have all this foreign language in there that you can just enjoy. Oh, I'm going to watch that tonight. Ultimate Beastmaster. Oh, I, I can't. I mean, I'm I'm gutted that I've already watched all of it because I would really watch that. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. Uh, listeners, I'll put it in the show notes as well if you want to become Ultimate Beastmaster. <laughs> okay, uh, Sarah, we we're running out of time, but obviously we can we can talk about we can talk about a million more things, a thousand times more. So I would be so happy in the future to perhaps have you back on the show. I'd love to. Ah, me too. <laughs> And I mean, yeah, we, we can talk for hours as we have in the past many times. Indeed, indeed. And meanwhile, where can people find you? And don't forget to mention your new blog about the coffee and coronavirus. Oh, <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, Kirsten's mentioning my, my more recent personal blog, um, <laughs> lap, laptopandlattes.com is where I'm writing more about, uh, yeah, my personal life here in China. It's just sort of a place where I can write more diary type entries, but also my thoughts on the situation, uh, the global situation with coronavirus. Um, but yeah, that's not so language related, but it's definitely about globalization and about, um, global cultures. So definitely language learners might be interested in that. Um, I also write about languages and language learning at misslinguistic.com. And if you're interested in my company or potentially, uh, working with Meridian Linguistics, since many language learners, um, are, that are listening might have the relevant skills, um, meridianlinguistics.com. That's my language consulting firm. And, uh, you can find me on social media. I think we'll put all those handles in the show notes. And, uh, so you can find me mislinguistic at most places. And yeah, I'm always, always excited to have conversations with language learners and get their feedback on my content and also just hear what they're working on and what their challenges are. Fantastic. So, and I would recommend as well, listeners, just check out Sarah Maria. She has, she has a lot of, she has a lot to say and she has a lot of really useful stuff to say. And everything I read from you always gets me thinking, or feeling bad that I'm not doing enough Chinese. So it's a, it's a motivator. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad. I'm glad it's helpful. Okay. The way I sign off here on the Fluent Show is uh, always the same. I say goodbye from me. And then my guest says goodbye in any language of their choosing. So listeners find us at fluent.show. It's fluent.show slash guests slash Sarah Maria to hear more about Sarah Maria. And it is goodbye from me. Goodbye. And goodbye from Sarah Maria Husband. 再见. 
Thank you for listening to The Fluent Show. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting the show by leaving a review in your podcast app or even becoming a member of our Patreon community where our supporter perks include a secret feed full of added show notes and a VIP option where you can get priority answers to your listener questions on the podcast. Don't forget that you can send us your language questions and feedback to hello at fluentlanguage.co.uk or find us on Twitter at The Fluent Show or Instagram, hashtag The Fluent Show. We're always so excited to hear from you and read every message and review. See you next week.